Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them or turn them on and head on over to Psalm chapter 10. I'm excited to start this new series with you today. As many of you know, because I announced it a while ago, that we were going to be looking at the subject of revival, of true awakening. But as I prayed about the series and as I met with many of you, the Holy Spirit just started to speak to me in a sense that, uh, that we were to put revival on hold, not that we were wanting to put revival hold. You know, it can come at any time, but uh, the series anyways, until the new year, and that we would spend the next three weeks in the subject of tough questions in the Psalms. And by spending time with these tough questions, it will give us collectively encouragement in these areas of need from the word of God. So I think you would probably agree with me that the book of Psalms is unlike any other book in the Bible. And I think that's why we is the reason why we love the Psalms so much. I'm sure through the course of your life you have experienced tough times. Has anyone experienced tough times in their life? If you don't have your hands up, you're a liar. Uh, and maybe you even experience dark times. And in those times, the book of Psalms shines brightly for us and has ministered to our souls. Maybe you even have your favorite psalm for different situations and you pull that out and you recite that psalm to yourself during a time of concern. As Dr. Oford illustrated for us just last week in his testimony how Psalm 23 brought him great peace amidst a worrisome time. We can do the same and maybe you have done the same. But why are the psalms so attractive to us in hardships? And there's a lot of answers to that question, but I suggest the one reason why the Psalms are so incredibly helpful for us when we're just going through the ringer of life is because they are just so honest. The Psalms are honest, brutally honest at times. And we love the Psalms because they give us voice and they give us verse for the pain of our souls. They identify for us what we're wrestling with deep within our hearts that maybe we don't have the language to share. Things that we're struggling with, pains we're dealing with. And what happens is that the Psalms address raw and sometimes even scary questions about life, about God, and about pain. And while at the same time, this is important, they lead us back to biblical thinking. So today, what we're going to talk about will essentially boil down to these three things. The first is, life is hard. Can you all agree? Life is hard. The Psalms are honest. And God is good, amen? And that's where we want to end in our pain, in our trials, in our suffering, is the third one, that God is good. So those three phrases are what we're going to essentially see in Psalm 10. The psalmist is not afraid of tough questions or raw emotions or painful experiences. And the beautiful thing and the most important thing about the psalms is that they don't leave us in our pain either. Instead, they lead us back to God. The psalms serve as a bridge between our pain and the power of God which is my humble goal through these next three weeks, that I can help you walk or at least give you the tools to help you walk over that bridge from your pain in resting in the who of God is. So today we ask the question of, why do you hide yourself, O God? And this question we will see is uh, directly connected to the pain of injustice. 
I think we have all witnessed or have suffered under the hand of injustice in our lives before. If you haven't, you will. And it's my job as your pastor to help prepare you for those times of injustice, those times of hardships, be it personal conflict, be it unexpected illness, be it a loss of a job, the death of a loved one, or the betrayal of somebody that you've trusted. In those moments, there needs to be an understanding of how to suffer. And oftentimes, we don't suffer well as Christians. And the problem is we often, we, we do two things. There's two things we often do in our, in our suffering. The first one is this. We, we often deny the reality of just how hard it is. Right? Someone comes to you at church and they ask you, like, hey, how are you doing, my brother? How are you doing, my sister? Oh, I'm doing fine. I'm just trying to praise the Lord. You know, yeah, it's a little hard, but I'm just praising the Lord. And we try to find the right spiritual lingo just to kind of put a facade over just how hard it is. And on one level, don't get me wrong, we need to be praising the Lord in our pain and in our suffering. But we tend to use spiritual jargon as a way to cover up, as a way of denial of what's really going on deep within our soul. That there's this deep inner wrestling that we're wrestling with. And there's sometimes a mentality in the church as well that it's not okay to not be okay. I think we've all felt that in the church. You come to church and they almost feel like you expect to be prim and proper. But we need to make room for this, that it's okay to not be okay. To say, look, I'm not doing well. I'm really struggling. I could barely get myself out of bed today and I'm just really wrestling so we see this denial, but the other dynamic is when it comes to suffering is we see dissection. Do you know what I mean? When someone looks at their suffering and they're consumed with it, trying to figure out why, how did this happen? And they try to figure out the equation of their suffering because X plus Y equals Z. So there must be some connection here. I must have done something wrong. There must be a reason. And it's this constant wrestling with the why question that can consume people. So on one hand, you have denial, not acknowledging that it's really hard. And then on the other hand, you have dissection, trying to overanalyze it, getting stuck on the why. We all know a person like this. They've been dealing with the same issue for 30 years. You go away and you see them 15 years later. and It's like, you're still complaining about that? They get stuck on the why. And yet when we contrast this with the Psalms, we see that the psalmist is giving us a great model for how we should approach the issues of suffering and hardship. The Psalms, like the book of Job, avoid these two pitfalls that are on the screen. And what they do instead is incredibly helpful to us as believers. So today from Psalm 10, we're going to see that. We're going to look at that. What do they do? We're going to see about that this psalm is all about unresolved evil. And, and we're not exactly sure why this psalm was written, what the background or setting was. There's lots of speculation. But what we do know for sure is that it appears to be an incredibly personal psalm. And it's important and helpful because it speaks to something that all of us, or we will at one time in our life, be familiar with. And that's the pain of injustice. Have you ever been wronged by somebody? Have you? I've been wronged by somebody. Have you ever watched as somebody you loved was unfairly treated? And what makes the situation even more painful is when the person has done you wrong or is doing your friend wrong, won't re relent and they just seem like they're getting away with it. 
It's outrageous. And it's frustrating. And you want it to stop. I mean, the pain at one level is hard enough to deal with. But it's the frustration connected with injustice is a pain that is on an entirely different level. It's one thing to hurt. But it's another thing to be so frustrated that this issue just won't resolve. You've probably even thought in your head what you would do if you had the power to expose them, to stop them, and punish them. And in all honesty, I'm glad you and I don't have that power. Because I've prayed these honest prayers of lament, asking God to strike my enemies. Could you imagine if we had that power? You know how many dead people there would be around the world if you and I had that, that, that ability? Either of us having that power would be dangerous. And I'm so glad that neither of us are God. But in the reality, the reality still stands that we are often left powerless in these situations. We're stuck between the pain of what's happened or happening and the frustration of injustice. So what do you do? Well, this psalm answers that, and it addresses this question. It addresses tough and honest and emotional questions. What happens here is the psalmist turns his attention to God with some very honest questions. And these are not theoretical questions. These are very personable, personal sorry, and real questions. Because the problem isn't just the pain uh, or the injustice. There's something more significant going on for the psalmist here, and it's this. Although there is pain and although there is suffering and injustice, you know full well that God could stop it and he's not. So your struggle is not really with the pain or the injustice. Your struggle is actually with God. You might say things like, God, why don't you stop this? You have the power. You have the ability why don't you expose their evilness? You're the king of kings. You reign over all. And I've seen you do it before. Why don't you do something now, God? And yet at times, God doesn't. So what do you do with that? Well, let's see how the psalmist deals with this reality and how that can reflect to our own lives. He begins with two honest questions. And I want you to notice how personal they are. The first one is found in verse 1. A. And he says, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? This is a very emotional statement. Just hear what he's saying. The psalmist is deeply troubled because God seems like he is too far removed from what's happening on earth. It's almost like a child who's in trouble and their dad can see them about to be hurt. And the dad doesn't move and come to the rescue this time. O Lord, why do you stand far away? The psalmist even uses the name Yahweh there. That's why it's all capital L-O-R-D. He uses Yahweh there when he, to address God. And that name for God is the name that he gave to Moses back in Exodus 14 when he was about to deliver his people from Egypt. He says, go tell Pharaoh to Moses, let my people go. And Moses says, well, who am I to tell them is sending me? And he says, tell them and the Israelites that I am, that I am sent you, that Yahweh sent you. This is God's personal name. It's a name of power. It's a name of deliverance. It's a name of glory. The name Yahweh was the name that delivered God's people from the clutches of Egypt, the most powerful nation at its time, and then made a mockery of the Egyptian gods through the 10 plagues. 
This name Yahweh, this is the same God who dwelt with, uh, in their midst, who led them in the wilderness, who inhabited the tabernacle and filled the temple. This was the God Yahweh who delivered his people and defended them time and time again. I am Yahweh, Lord Jehovah. The name means deliverer. The God is a rescuer. That he is a God who brings people out of slavery. But in this moment... I don't want you to miss this. In this moment, this God, Yahweh, the deliverer, who could deliver and has delivered, the psalmist says is far away. Why, O deliverer, aren't you delivering? Why, O rescuer, aren't you rescuing? He feels as God is distant or or removed and uninvolved in this situation. I really want you to feel the weight of what the psalmist is saying here. God's people are in trouble, and yet it feels as though God is unmoved and that he is uninterested. And frankly, this is where it gets honest, it feels as God isn't caring. He doesn't care what's going on. The psalmist feels as God isn't helping him any longer. Why, O Lord, are you far away? The second question is found in the second half of the verse. And he says, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? This complaint moves from the passive, why are you so far away? To the active, why do you hide yourself? So it's not just this guy who's standing off far and aloof to the situation. Now it moves to God actively hiding himself from the psalmist. Like, it's like they, he knows the psalmist has a problem. He's like, I don't want to deal with this, so I'm going to hide myself from the issue. This is a, a direct uh, a attack against God in, a, in, in this moment of frustration. It's like this. When I led, I like to explain it this. I led the youth ministry here for about five years, and I, when I first came... We, uh, the youth introduced this game called Sardines. Has anyone played that game? It's like reverse hide-and-seek. I never heard of it before coming here. But uh, uh, So instead of someone going to hide and you look for them and once you find them, the game's over, once you find the person hiding, you're supposed to cram into that closet all sweaty and nasty until the whole group is in there. Well, the youth in my first year failed to tell me that there's a secret room up in the balcony and the door blends in with the wall. Okay, and there's like 15 youth shoved into this room, and I feel like an idiot walking around the building like, where are they? And I didn't know if I should be impressed that I lost 15 youth in such a small building, or annoyed. (laughs) But there they were, all shoved in there, snickering at me because they could hear me searching for them. So, uh, but although this is a game, in reality, it's frustrating when there are people, but they're hiding from you. They're avoiding you. They know they've done wrong and they don't want to deal with it. So they they pivot away from you. And the psalmist expresses this frustration. God, you are hiding yourself. But it's even more than just frustrating because the word hide uh, that the psalmist uses there can actually have a more emotional meaning. It It can mean intentionally withdrawn. It can mean to ignore. It can also carry the idea of somebody being hypocritical, pretending to be one thing. I am God the deliverer. I am the faithful God who will deliver you to actually being something else. So he's calling God a hypocrite. So does that make you feel uncomfortable? That the psalmist would talk about God and to God with that language? Because it should. 
Because he's basically telling God, look, I know you're God, but you're not really acting like God right now in this moment. And if you're not uncomfortable with this, you probably don't fully understand what the psalmist is trying to say here. Because he is really struggling. And he's not just struggling with pain. He's not just struggling with injustice. He's struggling with the reality of God. Injustice is one pain. But God's lack of intervention in his need is seemingly unexplainable. Why do you hide yourself, O God? Why the silence? Why are you just letting this go? Don't you see? Don't you know what's happening on your earth? And you see all the people who are being hurt by this evil. And you're doing nothing. Absolutely nothing. That's what's coming out of his mouth. And I just want to pause for a moment. I want to give you two pastoral observations. I know that there are some of you in this room who have experienced this pain of injustice. Who have felt this. And, I, and a really, really great injustice. And it just has deeply affected you. But it's not just deeply affected you. But it's deeply affected your relationship with God. And I just want you to know that there are many people in church history, there are many people in the Bible, and there are even many people in this room who have wrestled with God over these issues. But one of the mistakes, and here's my caution, here's my pastoral caution for you, I think that we make is to allow the enemy to convince you that just because you're struggling when wrestling with God's will, that you have somehow abandoned the faith. That's not true. I just want to tell you that you have a psalmist right here who's struggling, really struggling. And just because you're struggling with hard questions like, why would God do this? Why would God allow this? Why wouldn't he stop it? Just because you wrestle with that doesn't mean you've abandoned your faith. Just like the psalmist hasn't. But what this teaches us is that there needs to be room in the Christian faith for honest, heartfelt lament, like we see here in Psalm 10. We need to make room for this. The second pastoral observation is that while the psalmist is asking these tough questions, he won't stay there. He won't stay in the why. But I do want you to see that he does start there. He does go through this. So can you cross the line, I've been asked this, can you cross the line into think, sinful thinking and sinful actions and sinful attitudes with your anger to God? Yes, you can. You sure can cross that line and you can cross it very quickly. But I also want to suggest to you that there is an important place where we, uh, uh, where we are honest with God with what's going on in our souls. Because the reality is, God already knows you feel that way. So why not verbalize it? But here's what I found. I found that many people who are around others who are hurting are very uncomfortable with hard questions that people ask. And this is my second caution. Therefore, when we do this, when we have people and we ask them, how are you doing this Sunday? And someone just goes, oh my word, I had the worst week, blah, blah, blah. And we're like, dude, I just wanted to know how, how your day was today. Like, <laughs> calm down. And what do we do in those moments when we don't make room for these hard, tough questions as we give them trite answers or we try to even defend God? We try to defend God from what this person is saying. Why, oh God, are you so far? Well, you know, he's not really that far. If that's you, knock it off. You're causing more pain than that's needed. God doesn't need your defending. He can defend himself, amen? 
If someone comes to you with those hard questions, I don't care how theologically inclined you are. We all know God is close. Let them express those pains. And I just want to encourage you that if you ever have the opportunity to deal with a friend who's in a lot of pain or a spouse that is really hurting, I just want you to remind you that sometimes the people who are most afraid of those questions are not the people in pain. It's the people around those in pain because they just want the pain to stop. They don't want to see their friend or loved one hurting and, and they, they move to these trite answers because they try to just snuff it all out. They want the questions to stop and sometimes... What they don't realize is that a person who's working through those questions, it can take a very long time. And you as a person that is trying to help them walk through this deep and dark and hard valley, embrace, we need to embrace the fact as a church that Psalm 10 is in the Bible for a reason. Because it gives us an example to follow. And sometimes the people we love, they're stuck in verse 1. Why, O oh Lord? Why, oh God, are you far? Why are you hiding myself? And it takes them a very long time to get to verse 16, where we're going to see later in the sermon that the psalmist moves to a renewed trust and faith and confidence in God. It at times takes people a long time to move from verse 1 to verse 16. And you could be scared to death at just how long it might take. But your job there is to encourage and to help point their eyes to Christ. But we need a place first and foremost, in our understanding of God and the suffering and for the allowance of tough and honest and emotional questions. And you don't have to answer those questions. They just want to ask those questions. Why are you so far away, God? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And then the next thing he turns to in our verses, is the reality of injustice and just how frustrating it is. And I love this section from verses 2 to 11 because what we see here is that although the psalmist knows that God knows about all of these things, he, there's still just something refreshingly helpful about him reiterating them to God, retelling them to God. The psalmist pours his heart out to God and he does not, and he does not to inform God because God already knows, but rather what he's doing is he's wanting to ask God for help. That's what he's building to. And what's beautiful is, is as we go through this list from 2 to 11, you will resonate with many things that the psalmist brings up. And this is beautiful because it reminds us that the Bible lives where you live. It speaks to the issues of your life. It's not an outdated, antiquated book. It's alive and active. Notice in verses 2 to 4 how the psalmist is frustrated of the outrageous pride of the wicked one. Notice all the inflammatory language and how it's all connected to pride and arrogance. Picking up in verse 2, it says, In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor and let them be caught in their schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. And in pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. So we don't really know who the wicked man is or what he's done. He's not personally, well, we know what he's done, but we don't know what he's not personally identified. He's just referred to as the wicked man. 
And what it indicates here, particularly verse 2, is that the wicked person is oppressing the poor. He's oppressing the weak and that there are schemes that are at play and these plans that are still ongoing. And what we, when, while we're not told the, the specifics of the details, the point is that it, there is oppression, there's oppression, there is unfairness, and there is injustice. But on top of it all, what makes it even more frustrating, even more outrageous, is the pride of the person who's doing it. There is an outrageous level of arrogance here. And the psalmist wants God to do something about it. He wants him to stop the oppression and the injustice. But even more, he wants God to show the wicked man that he's not God. That he's not in control. But only God is. The wicked man is living as if he lives above consequences. And this is incredibly grieving to the psalmist's heart. Have you ever experienced that? Somebody is not, do, not just doing something wrong, but they're doing something so wrong that they think they're so right. And you're frustrated over that reality. And you just wish that somebody, somehow you could get through to their arrogant brain and show them that you're not so right. You're not that big of a hotshot, dude. Get off your high horse. But the reality is you can't. But the psalmist does something important. He pours his heart out about the outrageous arrogance of the wicked to God, to the one who can do something about it. Secondly, he talks about the frustrating success that comes. I mean, it's one thing for the person to be arrogant, but it's even more frustrating that they're good at it and they're successful, right? Picking up in verse 5 to 6, he says, His ways prosper at all times. Times. Did it change yet? Did okay at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight for all his foes. He puffs up at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. Oh, what a prideful guy. What makes this situation even more challenging is the fact that everything seems to be going well for the wicked man. And what, it's one thing uh, if his life was falling apart and life was hard for him, if his car just kept breaking down, if he lost his job. But no, it's this progressive prosperity that just seems to follow him. And it's his arrogance and it's working. And the result is that it's really frustrating and it creates an evil sense of self-confidence. As we saw in verse six, he says, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. And it's just so frustrating because you look and you say, God, you could bring this all down on him right now. You could trap him up in his own schemes, but instead he's seemingly blessed. What are you doing, God? He's seemingly successful. He's, he's outrageously prideful and it's frustrating. Third, we then see abusive language. One of the common weapons of injustice and oppression is words. Words have power, and the wicked man uses his mouth to wage war on others. Notice in verse 7, he says, His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit, and oppression uh, under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. His words are filled with threats and trouble. So they're sneaky and they're destructive. And then under his tongue are mischief and iniquity, meaning his mouth is just a churning cauldron of wicked statements, just waiting for hurtful and horrible words to come out. And what happens here is people are using their words for unjust purposes. And this creates so much pain and there seems to be no end to it. 
So we see abuse of speech, which is so hard. Because whoever said sticks or stones can break my bones, but words have never hurt me, must have lived in a a reality that's not our own. Because words cut deeper than, um, uh, than sticks and stones, in my opinion. So we see this abuse of language. And then fourthly, we see intentional oppression. Look at verse 8, and he says, uh, he, says uh, uh, he sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding place, he murders the innocents. His eyes are stealthily watching for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in the thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. Hear that premeditation? That intentionality here? The idea here is not just the uh, the, the, the unjust person being arrogant or his successful, it's not that they're just using abusive speech, it's that they're doing this all on purpose. It's intentional. And notice the effects it has in verse 10. It says, the helpless are crushed. They're crushed. They sink down and they fall by his might. The word crushed is an important word. It means to be broken. And many of you can completely resonate with that word. Some, someone has been so cruel to you or they've been cruel to someone you've loved. They've said something and they've stolen a piece of your soul. There's the old saying, you know, I don't care about the flesh they took. I just want the piece of the soul they stole from me. And how you know that you've been crushed is that when the person is, is going to either be a part of your life again for whatever reason or somebody brings that person up in conversation or a situation happens that's similar to it or whatever, something happens without warning inside of you. It changes. Something happens in your soul. Something clicks and you become overwhelmed and you feel once again that you're crushed. It's like anxiety just sits in your stomach when they're mentioned. Normally, this happens after you think that you've resolved the issue. Normally, this happens after you think that you've healed from the issue. And then all of a sudden, they're brought up and you go, whoop, I guess I didn't deal with this. I just swept it under the rug and I ignored it. But I'm still broken from what they've done. And you sink down and you fall like verse that we saw in the verse by their might. Because it was intentional. What they did wasn't an accident. Because an accident is one thing, but it's the intentionality behind their actions that make their actions so grievous and painful. It's one thing to step on somebody's toe on accident. Yeah, there's still going to be pain. And sure, if it's me, I'm going to scream in anger for a moment. But I'm not really mad at you. But if you go around intentionally stomping on my foot or somebody else's, that's going to be a different reaction. I can tell you that. Because accidents don't help the physical pain. Accidents still cause physical pain, but it's the, it, does, it does help the emotional pain. Because it's the planning, the premeditation, and the intentionality that wounds deeper than the physical. And that's what we're seeing here in verse 10. And when the wicked uh, take, uh, then the wicked take it a step further, and they display that he has no fear. In verse eleven, he says, "He in his heart, God has forgotten, and he has hidden his face, and he will never see it." He thinks there's no consequences. There is no fear of God in his eyes. What he's saying is that the wicked man lives as if God is not even in the picture. There are no consequences to how he's living or the actions that he is committing. The wicked man lives as if God is incompetent, as if he's apathetic to the things that humans are doing. Really what this boils down to is the wicked man believes that he is God. 
And that is what is so unbelievably frustrating. We have all at times have felt the, the emotions of frustration over the realities of evil and injustice, and we know how this feels. I like to illustrate it like this. When you're traveling down the highway and somebody comes out beside you and just passes you like you're sitting still, like they just absolutely blow your doors off, they're flying, and then you come over the hill and you see that a police officer has pulled them over and you're like, ha ha ha, sucker, you got caught. I am so happy, unless it's you. Then you're like, no, I wasn't speeding. And, uh, but rarely... Are there ever police on the road when this happens? Normally what happens, they pass you like a rocket and they cut you off and all you are left with is feeling angry, wishing if only there was a cop. Oh, I wish there was a cop there this time. Or I wish I had the power to give them a ticket because I would write this lunatic a ticket so fast he wouldn't even know what hit him. But it's one thing to talk about traffic violations. Don't get me wrong, they're very frustrating. But it's another thing when it's a personal issue, when it's a personal attack, because it feels like the violator is getting away with murder. And what's amazing is that in the midst of those feelings, the Bible meets us right there, right where we live. The psalmist lives where you, the psalm lives where you live. It lives where I live. It gives us voice to our pain and it gives us voice to our frustrations. Get this, the Bible enters your world and it serves as a great comfort to us. But what's more is not just the Bible meets us where we are, but Jesus met us where we are. You can take Psalm 10 and you can do a, an arc from the Old Testament into the New Testament to the incarnation of Jesus and realize that part of his incarnation of him becoming flesh, according to Hebrews 4, is that we would have a high priest who understands how it is to live in this unjust world, who knows what it's like to deal with injustice and pain. And for that matter, he gave us an example of how we should follow and obey him and respond in the face of injustice. And he wrote it down for us through his apostle Paul in the letter to, or sorry, not Paul, in his apostle Peter in his letter uh, in 1 Peter 2, 21 to 22, he says, for this you have been called, and this for this been called is to suffer in the context of, of chapter 2 of 1 Peter, because Christ has also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was he deceitful, deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to the one, here it is, who judges justly. So are you being reviled? Don't revile in return. Are you suffering? Don't threaten. How do you do that? Well, the whole reason that, one of the reasons that Jesus became a man is because now we have the privilege to walk as he walked. And notice what he says, but he continued entrusting himself uh, to the one who judges justly. So what did Jesus do? He continued to give the situation over to God who judges justly. Jesus personally endured the frustrating reality of injustice and in order that you might have an example to follow. So if you think in the back of your mind that injustice is just winning the day and you think that there is no point to all the injustice in your life, I just want to remind you that it was the injustice of the cross that created the possibility of your forgiveness, which you now benefit from when you put your faith in Christ. God can take the injustice that has happened to you 
hear this, he can take it and he can transform it for his glory and for his good. But you may not be able to see how it's all going to work out. But in the meantime, from this life into the next, you simply have to keep entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly, which means you say, God, I can't figure this out. I can't fix this. I don't know what to do, but I'm going to trust you, the one who judges justly. Because we can't trust our own hearts in these moments. We can't trust our own desires and wants because we are going to want to get revenge and other things and take it into our hands. We must give it to God. And this is the same with the psalmist. He could only hope in God. He could only hope in what God would eventually do in terms of making this injustice right. So as I close, we'll just finish off flying through the last few verses of Psalm 10. There's great hope in the midst of injustice. So what does the psalmist do? The first thing he does, he doesn't stay there. He asks these tough questions of why, O Lord, but he doesn't live in the why question. And it's the same for us. At some point in our suffering, we must begin to move on and heal. The psalmist starts in his pain. Pain is okay, but he doesn't live in his pain. He isn't defined by his pain. He's moving on. And the first thing he does is he calls upon God. He turns to God. And that's the first thing we must do. When suffering happens, we tend to run to pornography. We tend to run to gambling. We tend to run to food or gossip or slander or some other sin. But we must turn to God and call upon his name. Notice that he cries out to the Lord and he takes it all out in prayer. Picking up in verse 12, he says, Arise! Oh Lord, oh God, lift up your hand and forget not the afflicted. He calls on God to arise. He's not just talking about his pain now. His focus has shifted. And this is always important for us to understand when it comes to suffering. At some point, your pain, your focus, sorry, must shift from your circumstances and the injustice. And it must shift to the reality of who God is. Arise, O oh God. You are my vindicator. You are the one who is going to make this right. You are the one who alone can help me in this time. He's asking God for help. And then verse 13, the shift goes even further. He says, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call account? Notice his focus is not just on his own circumstances, but now he is saying, God, this is on your plate. This is about you and your glory. This is about your name and your fame. And so the psalmist is now directing his attention towards God and, and, what, and who God is. And he calls on him. And then notice then what happens. Not only does he call on God here, but in verse 14 he says, But, do you, do, but you do see. For you note mischief and vexation, that you, that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commit himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. He's replacing those lies in verse 1. Why are you so far? Why are you hiding yourself? With truths. Do you see that? You actually do see this, and I know that. You actually are taking note of this, and I know that. And we can only find our hope and help in you. The psalmist is preaching to himself. He's rehearsing, God, you have been faithful. You have been faithful time and time again. You have been the helper to the fatherless. The psalmist is preaching to his soul in the midst of his injustice that, that is around him. He's clinging to the promises of 
God's word, that he does see this, he does note it. And only in God's hand can something be done. Only in God's hand can I be vindicated. This is why we have the scriptures, church. This is why we have the word of God, so we can be reminded over and over again of his faithfulness. And we can preach these truths to ourselves until they become sweeter than honey to our souls, where we desire them and we believe them and we live them. Thirdly, in verse 15, the psalmist says, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his name, uh, uh, call his wickedness to account till you find none. What is he saying here? He wants God to break the power of the evildoer. He wants God to hold the wicked accountable for their unjust actions. He's relying on the Lord to do it. He's not praying for permission to do it. Like, God, I'm going to go break this sucker's arm and I'm going to teach him a lesson. I'm going to take this into my hand. Can I have permission to go beat him up? No, what he's saying is, God, you break the power of his stronghold. You do it. And he's asking him to do it completely which is why he says, until you find none. He's asking for all wickedness to be removed from the earth. God, this is your issue, and I trust your judgment. This is a big faith step for the psalmist, and it makes all the difference in the world. If you're going to try to figure out why this bad thing happened to you, and you're going to try to get your own revenge on that person, you know what? Even if you could get your own revenge, it would never be enough. Never. You can put as much pain on someone's life and it would never be enough because you'll never know if they've truly suffered just as much as you did in the same way that you did. So you can keep trying and you can keep trying and it will never be enough because the ultimate resolution is not revenge. It's trusting in God. That's the ultimate resolution. And it's in his ability to bring divine justice as we see in, first, in the first Peter passage. And then we finally come to the psalmist resting in what I call the who of God in verse 16 to 18. It says, the Lord uh, is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart and you will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. So that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Notice he ends with what I have called the who question. Because there are two kinds of questions you can ask when you suffer. You can ask why, which is important, but you can also ask who. And I would tell you from experience, the why question is not as nearly satisfying as the who question. The who of God is that we now see the psalmist resting in. And honestly, church, you can ask why all you want, But you don't really want to know why. Because you can't handle why. But you can handle who. And with that, the psalm comes full circle. We begin with honest and hard questions about injustice. Why, oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why are you so distant? Why are you so far? Why are you hiding yourself? And we end this psalm with a confident bowing before him in humble worship. Lord, you are king. You are king forever and ever. And that's what I long for some of you. To make that bridge from why to who. Why do you stand so far away, God? To you are Lord and king forever and ever. And, although this, and all through this psalm we have seen 
uh, little glimpses of the gospel that we can be reminded of that God can take any injustice that you face and he can use it for his glory and your good. And the greatest example of this happening is what happened on the cross. This is the why of the gospel. This is why we love the Psalms, that life is hard. The Bible is honest. It's just gut level in your face honest, which leads us to the final conclusion. God is good, and that's where we must rest. So how do you deal with injustice? You got to admit that life is hard. Go through those hard questions with God. Be honest, because the Bible is honest. And come to the final destination that God is good. Amen, church? As I pray, the worship team may come. Father, we praise you, Lord, and we thank you that you don't leave us in these times of hardship. And Father, we thank you, Lord, that you give us permission to share our hurts and our pains and our tough questions with you. Father, as we do this, may we never believe the lie that because we struggle with the reality of what you're doing at times that we've abandoned our faith. But Father, may we know the truth that you are using these tough times to refine us like steel and metal, Lord, removing the impurities from our life so we would be more faithful in our witness to who you are, Lord. Father, we thank you, God, that you are a God of love. And Lord, that you see us through all of these pains and not just see us through, but Lord, you have lived through Jesus the, the, the most ultimate injustice to ever uh, to ever happen on the face of this earth. And that was your death on the cross, taking our sins and bearing the wrath of God the Father so that we might be saved. We thank you, Lord, that you're not a far off and aloof God, but you're as close as the mention of your name. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.